I'm joined by His Excellency Anote Tong, the Chairman of the Pacific Elders Voice and former President of Kiribati in the sidelines of a just wrapped visit to the Torres Strait Islands at the invitation of uh, Saibai and uh, Boigo Island Elders who are seeking a court order to force further cuts to carbon emissions in line with the best available scientific evidence. Your Excellency, first, thanks for accepting our invitation and welcome to Night TV Radio. Uh, thank you, and I thank you for inviting me. Now, you're backing the traditional owners as they take the government to court. Why are you supporting them uh, in this action, especially taking the government to court? The, the, the campaign, the Andrix Seed, that I've been working on for decades, in which the, uh, the Pacific Elders' voice has been supporting, is the, um, the reduction in emissions. And uh, this case is about uh, the reduction in emissions. And uh, we did, in fact, visit Australia towards the end of last year to discuss that very issue. Uh, as an incoming government, we thought we'd uh, be able to make an input into the, uh, the for poly- new uh, policy formulation at the very early stages. And one of the issues we did discuss was um, how Australia might be more proactive when cutting its uh, emissions. And uh, of course, here I'm not simply talking about the domestic emissions, but uh, in particular focusing on the um, the high volume of exports of uh, uh, fossil fuel, which Australia is exporting to other countries, which of course contributes to the global emissions. I've seen the call by the two elders, Paul Carby and uh, Pabai Pabai. Their message is really, really alarming. They say that um, in a few years' time, especially considering the effects of climate change. Uh, well, the effects are already being felt uh, deeply on the islands. The water line is uh, rising. Their cemeteries, which are the resting place of their people, are being washed away by rising waters. And you say the similarities with uh, other Pacific nations are very, very striking. Can you tell us what the situation is, especially on Kiribati? What I saw in in uh, Saibai and Boigu were really not uh, very different from our own experience. Uh, and uh, I did, in fact, share with the eldest the, um, the the video which I took early this year of my own home, uh, the waves coming over, over the seawall and onto my front door. And so these are the realities that we are living with. And it was, um, for me, it was a very interesting experience to see that um, the it's not only uh, the us can, in, the, in the center of the Pacific, but there are in fact other communities on the fringes of the Pacific and on the, the north of one of the more developed countries in in the world. And um, it, it's an interesting experience. We are facing very very similar challenges. Yeah, you said you've been involved with these communities for a while now, an involvement spanning from uh, the last government and uh, the current one. What main changes have you seen since the change of uh, leadership uh, in uh, our country? Are there are the new is the new leadership more proactive or is it just business as usual? Definitely, the the new government is um, a lot more proactive. That's definitely the case. The commitment to Cut emissions to zero by 2050 is certainly a, a very positive step, but uh, there seems to continue to be hesitation in going further than that. And I said this was an issue that uh, we did raise with the members of the government when we came in September last year, how Australia might be able to uh, cut the, uh, its, uh, the emissions which it exports to other countries. And, uh, you know, that is quite uh, significant in, in in our discussion, there doesn't appear to be any clear roadmap uh, uh, for transitioning from that. We understand the high, 
high dependence of uh, uh, the Australia on the revenues derived from those exports. But um, the, the question really how sincere, how genuine are we in trying to transition? And especially if um, there, there doesn't appear to be a, a clear plan to transition from that dependence away from the revenue derived from the export of uh, fossil fuels. Well, but of course, um, yeah. if I may add, you know, the what's been the most disappointing uh, aspect of the climate change debate has been the uh, politicization of climate change. Um, over the years uh, that I've been visiting and coming through Australia, that I've uh, been monitoring other events around the world, um, it's been most disappointing to to see the changes in administration along with the changes on, on, on policy on climate change. We have seen it here in Australia. We have seen it in New Zealand. We saw it in United States and um, no doubt other countries. And that is disappointing. Climate change is not an issue of, of, of politics. It's, it's really a, an issue of survival. And just to play the devil's advocate, the government might argue that the coffers are empty, they need revenue from fossil fuels for, uh, well, many other things more than ever. They need the money to fund really urgent things like defense, social security, infrastructure development, and so on. <laughs> so they'll okay. keep digging and <clears throat> selling these fossil fuels and coal, okay. coal out of the ground and... Yes, I understand. Of course, um, expenses like a $368 billion expenditure on a huge uh, um, uh, militarization program. And uh, this is the issue that's been, at the, you know, um, how, what are the major security concerns of our region? And of course, in the Pacific, it's been climate change, not so much the, the, the rivalry between the superpowers. Okay. And so, we saw how difficult it had been to come up with the resources, yet we saw how easy it was to uh, dish it out on an issue, uh, you know, the purchase of um, uh, nuclear submarines. And that is, you know, we have to, to try and understand that. And now you've lent your support to the two elders, helping raise their concern on a larger scale. How will this support translate beyond uh, the recent declaration? You know, it's it's got to be very clear that uh, this is not an, a new initiative on our part. I think we've been advocating... Um, for our own case in the Pacific, we've been advocating for the case of the uh, uh, the countries on the front line of the impacts of climate change. Uh, the, the, my visit to the Torres Island, uh, trade islands, is, um, of course, I think it brings home to me the reality that we're not really the only uh, communities uh, being threatened. And I think it uh, really broadens the scope uh, and the um, uh, of the the, the kind of um, challenge that we are facing here as a global uh, community. It's much, much wider than just us in the Pacific, and we, we truly understand that. And to have the similar challenges being faced by a, a group, of, a, a community which is being looked after by one of the most developed countries in the world. And of course, the, the, their own action and taking their own government to court, I think we've, we would have liked to do that because we see this as a gross injustice. The question was, who should we take to court? And of course, you, you, I'm sure you're aware that um, the, the Vanuatu, together with the, the Pacific Island countries and a good number of the uh, countries in the world, are taking the issue to the International uh, Court of Justice, just simply as an, uh, for an advisory opinion at this stage. But it's all about seeking justice, because on the issue like climate change, it, there doesn't appear to be anybody to blame directly, because... It's a slow onset. Nobody uh, responsible seems to be responsible. And that is the problem. 
And so uh, uh, bringing in communities in the Torres Strait Islands, I think, will only adds to a real understanding of the magnitude of the problem, how far wide reaching it is. And so hopefully the um, in the future, we would work together with these communities to tell the, real, the world, the, the global communities, those responsible of perpetuating this, that this is real, that it is a huge moral challenge, eh? and they really need to step forward. Otherwise, our world will be gone. Yeah, you've been a long-term advocate for climate change for many years, uh, especially during your tenure as president of Kiribati. I remember seeing you making very powerful presentations at the COP21 in Paris and uh, other forums in Morocco leading up to the next COP conference alongside the president of Palau and other leaders. You were truly a trailblazer in this space, but how has your country evolved in this space since you left office? Have they followed in your footsteps or just like in Australia, there's just some kind of uh, back and forth? <laughs> yeah, that is, that's extremely disappointing. There's, there was also a bit of politicking. I think uh, sometimes we, we, we politicize things which really are, are so critically important for our future generations. And that was sad. I was extremely sad. But I'm glad it's coming around now that we are coming to terms with the reality of what we are facing. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's such a, um, a tragedy that uh, we, we can uh, uh, politicize an issue which is so critical. Why I've been so not obsessed, I think close to being obsessed, because it truly is very personal to me, as I'm sure it's very personal for, to, for many, many other people who would bother to have the vision to see into the future see what is happening on the ground today at home, see what's happening on the ground in different parts of the world. Here in Australia, you're, getting, you're seeing events which you never witnessed before and in the frequency that you did not expect. And so that should sound a very sound al- loud alarm for, for some action to be, to be made. I've got uh, grandchildren, and it's about ensuring that they do have a future. At the moment, with the predictions being put forward by the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, our islands will be underwater by 2060. In 2007, by the fourth assessment report, it was by the end of the century. Now we are seeing it moving forward because action that needs to be taken to to avoid this is not being taken. And that is so sad. But I think it's about the reality of what's coming. And unfortunately, not so many people can have the, the, the vision to extrapolate the um, what is happening on the ground read the science, and then extrapolate into the future and see what it might be like in 2060 or, or beyond that, or even before that. I see the real possibility of uh, home islands not being uh, inevitable uh, in 20 years' time. And the question is, how do we deal with this? Okay. So unless we can come up with um, plans, radical plans for adapting to remain above the rising seas, uh, I'm afraid that the next option for us might be to uh, relocate somewhere else. Yeah, and becoming environmental refugees is the biggest concern expressed by traditional owners, and uh, that is illustrated uh, in the documentary they released ahead of the announcement that you're supporting their call to action. If worse comes to us, we can uh, say that uh, they'll be resettled on the mainland. Where would uh, the citizens of Kiribati find a refuge in the event of a climate catastrophe? Well, I really, quite frankly, I don't have the answer to that. 
I would have liked to be able to to say during my terms in office, um, I would have liked to be able to come back from one of the international conferences that I attend and say, "Don't you worry. When the the seas rise and when the storms get strong, get more and and um, stronger." We will be able to survive. This is the plan. We would raise our islands. We would live on floating islands or whatever it is. But quite frankly, the international community has not focused on the beyond the floods, okay? Uh, we keep talking about cutting emissions and finding our way around those, you know, just fiddling with the uh, the numbers and the terminology. But we never really have focused on what is coming, what the real consequences would be for people. And I think it's about time to to answer the question that you've just recently raised. You know, where do we go when it all comes down? And I assure you, there is no plan by the international community to deal with that. And um, we, quite, what I, during my time in office, I had to devise a plan and come up with radical, somewhat, um, you know, and um, crazy ideas about building this, um, bringing in uh, floating islands, raising the islands, and maybe... Uh, uh, a policy of um, migration with dignity. It's all about trying to respond to this um, challenge, which is it's an unprecedented challenge. It's going to change the, the, the nature of the world as we see it, as we know it today. And I think we've got to be prepared for that. Now, Your Excellency, before we part, uh, any final thoughts? Well, I, uh, I simply would like to say that I hope we can see, look at this challenge with moral eyes, perspectives, rather than it's about me. We've got to learn to look beyond ourselves. And I think this is this is why I've always referred to climate change as the greatest challenge, uh, uh, challenge for humanity. So it's going to test our humanity in the future. Your Excellency, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thank you.